worship team for leading us. That was amazing. Um, thank you again, Curtis, for coming on out and putting everybody together. We're excited um, to continue our service and head into the Word. Um, I really I just want to dive right in today. Um, and so if you can turn to your Bibles, um, or if you don't have your Bibles, it's going to pop here on the screen. Don't worry about the Galatians. Artwork is very nice. We are not in Galatians. We're actually turning to Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. And I'm going to try my clicker. I'm actually, last, it was like two weeks ago, I was saying I'm going to use it, and I had it in my hand. Didn't use it once. Um, this week, I'm trying to press buttons and see what happens, but I don't know if it's going to work. So, my tech team, it's all on you, man. Here we go. Um, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're excited to get into your word, Lord, to hear what you have for us today. Um, I pray, Lord, as we journey through this, uh, that you would uh, give me the words to share. Lord, I pray for open hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would work deep within our, our minds and our hearts and our souls and to what you want to share with us this, uh, this morning. And so, we trust in you as a good father. We know you have good things in store. And so, Lord, let us journey with this together. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is kind of be the, the heart of what we're going to work through today, this scripture right here. Um, and I had this entry where we're going to talk about a little bit about the past, in a sense. Um, and it's going to connect where we're going. How many of you here are, are baby boomers? Don't have to say your hand, age. Don't worry. You can raise your hand if you want. Um, you know who you are. Uh, with each generation, right, culture changes. And so we see from the baby boomers and until now, the millennials. Like for my parents and my grandparents, they lived in the memory of the Great Depression. My grandparents lived with the Great Depression. My parents lived with the aftermath of the Great Depression and with the reality of what happened during that time. And so it changed their mindset a bit. They were just happy to have a job, happy to, be, to, to work, right? They, if they were even unhappy working, it didn't matter. They had a job. It was great. They would say, you need to get a job, work hard, have a family, work hard for that family, hopefully climb the corporate ladder and into a different job. And so the value is just, we're just happy to be in work, right? Happy to have that. But now this affected my generation, the millennials, quite deeply. This is different in Canada, but in the States, Toys R Us has closed. I know, deep gas, come on. Many memories gone. Business shut down. Um, and the reason they believe this is because this reason. There are not enough babies being made. And like, how did they come up with that reason? So they looked at their Babies R Us cells, and they see that it was down. And then slowly after that, the Toys R Us cells were down. And so there was this, this population density that was happening. People weren't having enough babies, except for the crows. We contributed to that very well. And so, and you know what? At the end, there's a sign-up sheet at the desk for those willing to help make babies. Boy, well, this is going wrong. If you... If we need more babies, uh, talk to your wife. And so, uh, 
But Toys R Us, they just like, this is what happened. There's this population problem. Not enough babies are being made. And millennials, they aren't as quick to get married. About 25% of millennials between the age of 23 and 37 are married. Baby boomers, 50% in that age group. Millennials, they want to have, to get married, they have to get this first prerequisite out of the way, financial stability. When a millennial begins to look for a job, they have three things they want to look for. They want to make lots of money, duh. Um, they want to change the world. They're very big into this, changing the world. And the thing is, like, how much education would that, like, take me to do it? <laughs> so that's the third question that comes to mind. And so millennials begin to think this way because they want to live life to the fullest. They want to live life to the max. They, they see, you know, their families, that the struggles they go through. I've seen my parents and my grandparents uh, and what they went through, and I'm like, I don't want to live like that. I want to live a way that's full. And so they have the, they've seen the regrets of the past generations. They don't want to climb the corporate ladder because you might make it, you might not. They want to live life with no regrets, especially what the world has to offer. They want to create something that creates impact in the world. And so they've adopted this mindset. Have you ever heard this mindset? It's called YOLO. It's called You Only Live Once. It's an acronym. And this hardly isn't a new idea. We've heard of Carpe Diem, right? That was coined back 23 BC. So this isn't an old, new idea. It's an old idea made new again. And so this YOLO is living life to the fullest, inheriting, really, all risks, the good ones, the bad ones. And so this became such a big thing in our culture. And you know what was crazy about this is that pop culture began to make it big too. They began to make this a big thing. And they incorporated it into their songs, and it magnified it more and more and more. And so at one point on Saturday Night Live, Drake, if he's a Canadian rap artist, he went in his opening monologue and even apologized for adopting the yellow phrase because it got kind of crazy, got out of hand. People were doing things with really high risk and just saying YOLO at the end of it. A couple things, someone driving drunk and he Instagrammed it and he Instagrammed it YOLO before he went and crashed his vehicle. Not smart. Another football, a woman storms a football game and she's being arrested, she tweets YOLO. You only live once. It's like, really? Like, this is what we're, we're breeding here? And so culture, there's something that the millennials value. There's something that baby boomers valued. And it helped make their decision. It's basing their decision off of these certain things. Because the hearts or the values around this culture, our, my culture right now, is being spontaneous is good for you. More indulgence. Decision making done easy. We want it easy. Let's not wait for tomorrow. No need to worry. No need to hold back. And so off these values, we make decisions. Because at the center of it, there's a, there's a heart of what we do. And we see this not only for ourselves, but we see this not only for our church, but also for businesses, right? For businesses, there's this, this, this part of a business that this is what they do. This is what we're good at. This is what we're trying to push. This is our core value. This is our DNA strand. There's this book called The Four, and it talks about the DNA of the four businesses, the top four businesses in the world. Can you guess what maybe those four businesses in your head? I'll give you a sec to kind of tabulate your four. You got it? Four businesses. The first one, Apple. What Apple values is this, sex. And you're like, well, that's weird. 
But if you ever bought an Apple product, Apple Watch, Apple Phone, you've bought maybe an iPad or even a laptop, what is so, when you get it, isn't the package so attractive? Right? It comes in that white package. It's so sleek. Even the plastic that comes around your phone, you're like, oh, this is amazing. And then they give you a sticker on top of it. And so it just adds so much more awesomeness to it. But even the stores are attractive. Have you seen this store in New York? Completely made out of glass. Trippy, weird. And so they promote that well. It's attractive, Apple. People are attracted to the brand. Another one, Google. What their core value is God, right? Because of Google, I can replace a water heater. I can just Google it, how to replace a water heater. I'm not guaranteeing it's good, but I can do it. And so Google gives you the ability to know anything. You have a question right now, what are you going to do? Google it. Maybe ask Surrey. I don't know, but we Google things, right? It's, it's become its own term. Google makes you feel like God. Amazon is the next one. What about Amazon? You can literally get everything off of Amazon. My friend who lives in the States, he's like, we don't even go to the grocery store anymore. We just put in an Amazon order and it shows up at our door. I'm just like, what? This is amazing. This is unbelievable. And you know what's even more crazy? Is that in 2016, in the States, more people had Amazon Prime than voted in the election. 58% of the world indicated to 55%. Amazing, right? You can get everything off Amazon. You have the ability to do anything. And then the last one, Facebook. Facebook, right? Well, love, relationship, relevance. These four businesses, they know what their core values are, and they do it well. Right? We, we see these, and we're like, yeah, you know what? I realize what they all do. I realize their values, and I realize why they're successful. They do what they do well. So if businesses have values, then we have a core value system that we operate out of without even thinking about it. Without even thinking about it. And what we value the most, what we value the most in our lives, shows us what we're following, shows us maybe our idol, shows us what we're doing with our lives. In the book, We, Come, we Become What We Worship, there's a quote, and it's going to pop up here. And it says this, God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this decision. We either reflect the creator or we reflect something else in, within creation. So there are many different values within our lives. There's many different things that we could follow. There's many different things that we can make our core. Maybe it could be money, maybe sex, power, love, approval, comfort, control. And what we value is what dictates what we do. Our movements, our decisions, our function, and our steps are mapped out by our core values, by what is deeply ingrained within our hearts. If it's money, you might constantly think in figures. You might, when someone's talking to you about, maybe you're thinking about the next step in life, you're thinking about the cost, and you're running through it, maybe other than... Like, is this, God, what, is this what God wants me to do? Is this the next step for us? Those, like, thinking about the cost, right? It's good, but is it the first thing? Is it the thing that controls you in your decision to move forward? When you disciple someone, maybe it's like, oh, the extra mile, if I do it, it's going to cost me. Like, I, don't, I just don't feel like paying for lunches. I don't feel, like, what if they need something? Maybe, a, like, a, 
I need help with the bill or something like that. Do I really want to do that? Maybe it's love, the thing that you value the most. Maybe not in the love for our bridegroom Christ, but maybe in something else. I want to talk about this story, and if we can turn to Galatians. Galatians, oh, Galatians just ingrained the core value now. Uh, Galatians chapter 29 with me. That would be great. This is the story of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. And I'm going to start in verse 14 here. Genesis, not Galatians. Genesis 29. <laughs> the people were wondering, like, what is it? Like, if I say Galatians by accident, I'm pretty sure I mean Genesis. Uh, <laughs> anyways, Genesis chapter 29, verses 14 to 18. Grab my water. And it says, After Jacob had stayed with him for a while, for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. A little bit more backstory here is Abraham was promised, and we've talked about this quite a bit, was promised that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. Abraham fathered Isaac, and years later, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, became pregnant with twins. And God spoke this prophecy. He said, the elder will serve the younger. We see that in Genesis 25. This meant that the second-born twin had been chosen to carry on the Messianic line. In spite of that prophecy, Isaac set his heart on the older son Esau. He favored him over the younger. Because of Isaac's favoritism, Esau grew proud, spoiled, willful, and impulsive, while Jacob grew up cynical and bitter. We've heard this part of the story, right? It came now time for Isaac to give his blessing. And he's going to bless his son. In defiance of God's prophecy, he intended to give it to Esau, the blessing. But Jacob, dressed up as his older brother, went to his nearly blind father and received the blessing from his unsuspecting father. When Esau found out, he vowed to kill him. And Jacob had to flee for his life. And now Jacob's life, it was in ruins. He lost his family. He lost his inheritance. He would never see his mother or father alive again. So Jacob escaped to his mother's family and his uncle, Laban, took him in as a shepherd. Took him in. His uncle realized, hey, this guy, he's got skills. He's got talent. He has, really, he has a good ability as a manager. And so he offered him this job looking after the sheep. And then he asked the question, what can I pay, to be, what can I pay you to be in charge of my flocks? What, can I, what do you want to be in charge of this? And Jacob responded with one word, Rachel. Jacob obviously was smitten with Rachel. The text shows how lovesick and overwhelmed Jacob was with Rachel. He offered seven years' wages for her, which was in the currency of that time. That's a lot. But let's not even think about that time. Let's think about it right today. Seven years' wages? Seven years' wages. All right, this is like Romeo and Juliet type love. Teenage love. Camp love is what we're seeing here. Jacob's in love. In Genesis 29, 20 says, but they seemed like only a few days 
for him because he loved her so much. That's something teenage Jeremy would have said when, as I, in the pursuit of a girl. You know what? It's only going to seem like a couple days because I love you so much. But then the story continues in the next verse, which covers a second, seven years' time. And says, Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. First thing. Story, is obviously, is kind of weird because this is his cousin. So I want to get that out of the way. But second thing is, this is an unusually bold, graphic, and it's kind of a sexual statement for an ordinarily like restrained dialogue for Hebrew times. It's like someone saying today to a father, I can't wait to have sex with your daughter. Give her to me now. The narrator is showing a man overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longings for one woman. All of Jacob's decisions, right, up to that time are being run through this filter, this value of just getting Rachel. He's like, I don't know who one paid. I want her. Why? Like, why would he say this? Why would he do this? Why is this his value? Why is this his decisions being made through this? This is life was empty. He never had his father's love. He had lost his mother's love. And he certainly had no sense of God's love and care. So he had this value of love, an idol of love, really, because that's the thing he's trying to fill, that all his decisions were based on. He acted naturally to what? He valued the most. He's like, I value this the most. This is what I'm running my values through. This is what I want. And so all my decisions, are you paying me? Yeah, how much then? Well, Rachel... Seven, yeah, working, it doesn't even seem like work. I'm so in love. Laban knew how lovesick he was, and he took advantage of him. When Jacob asked Laban to marry Rachel, his response, it was kind of vague, right? He never said, yes, it's a deal. He said, it's better that you get her than, than some other man. Jacob wanted to hear the answer, yes, so he heard a Yes. But it wasn't a yes. It's like me asking Kim's father, hey, can I have Kim's hand in marriage? And he's like, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. <laughs> I'm glad my wife's not here. <laughs> but you're like, what if you said that? Yeah, I guess so. Sure, why not? You can take her. So after seven years, as custom, there was a wedding feast, a, a wedding party. A heavenly veiled bride was brought to Jacob in the middle of the festivals, and already Jacob was, in, was a little bit tipsy. He took his wife. He consummated this relationship. Now they're married. Morning comes, and he finds out it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah, the one with weak eyes. So this either meant two things. She was cross-eyed, and that's not trying to be funny. It's literally what it could mean. She was cross-eyed or unsightly in some way. And Jacob confronts Laban, and is like, Laban, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, hey, it's customary in our land. The firstborn is married off before the youngest. If you work seven more years, I will be happy now to give you Rachel to throw her in. And Jacob, the thing that he wants, the thing that he values, he's like, all right. And he does it again. This is the behavior of an addict almost. His value of Rachel led to a mess. 
And maybe the greatest casualty in all this is Leah. She's that girl nobody wanted. Her father knew no man would want to marry her or, off, or offer any money even for her. The man she married didn't even want her. It says Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. She began to have this hallow in her heart, just like Jacob did. She set her love, now her goals on getting Jacob's love. This became her value. This became the thing that was her idol. And it continues on in Genesis 29, 30 to, 31 to 35. You can, we'll read it here. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her, he opened her womb. Excuse me. But Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen... Sorry, my page is stuck together. The Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. I've done this for him. Now he'll surely love me. Jacob will surely love me. And so he named him Levi. But yet she conceived again, and when she gave to birth to this son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. This time I will praise him. And so she named him Judah. And then she stopped having children. If I had babies, maybe he would love me. But every child pushed her deeper into loneliness. And we look at this story and we wonder, man, where are the heroes? Who am I supposed to emulate? But what this story shows us is that this is a big story about right Christ being the center, being it all. And it speaks to us. If we try to summon our if we try hard to summon our strength and live right, we can't do it. The, the Bible repeatedly just shows us weak people, and that's us, and that we need to come to Christ. We need to come to God. And so, what do we take from this? Sometimes if we put our hopes and our belongings on the person we marry, that will crush them. If that's everything that we're saying, this is all that I've received now, this is the best, everything's going to be well, this is the, my person I worship, my idol, that's too much for them. No person, not even the best one, can give you what our soul needs. Nobody can do it. No thing can do it. And so we will think this. We will think the thing that we serve, maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's control. We think that we go to bed with Rachel, but we will always wake up with Leah because it's not God. We see Leah's values begin to change, and she says with her child Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. Finally, like she put her values in the Lord. Finally, she said, this is the one I want to follow. This is the person that I will base everything on. And what Jacob and Laban stole, she got back with the Lord. Leah got the real bridegroom, right? The one who loves the unwanted. It's amazing that it's Leah's son, Judah, who Jesus will come through. Salvation coming through the unwanted one, the unloved one, Leah. But Jesus is likely in that way, right? He became the man nobody wanted. He was born in a manger. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no beauty that we should desire him. And John 1, 11 says, He came to his own, and his own received him not. And at the end of the day, everyone abandoned him, Jesus. 
So we see this story. When we place our value, when we place the sole thing that we're going to base every decision on something else, everything goes awry. And so the question as we journey through this a little bit, and as we're coming to the end here, getting close, is how do we know where our value is at? How do we know what we truly value? Obviously, we say the Lord. We love him. We follow him. We come here. There are some ways we know where our heart truly is. I heard one person says, we can, we can always follow the money. Jesus said, what you spend money on or invest money in, you will love. Your heart always follows your money. How do you know where your heart is? Or what has your heart? What occupies your thoughts when you're having nothing else to do? What occupies your thoughts? What is it you worry about? What do you measure others by? When we, answer, we get to answer these questions, we begin to see maybe, where is our treasure? Where is my treasure lying? I heard this quote, whatever controls us is our Lord. When a decision in your personal life is brought to you and you first run it through the cost in your head, rather than running it through Jesus, you know what you serve. Jesus talks about money a whole lot, right? It's a big topic. And it's one of those main topics we see in the Bible saying it's a master we can't serve. Christ talks about money a lot because he knows it can cause this to be self-sufficient. And when we feel like we're self-sufficient, right, then we begin to think, oh, maybe I don't need God. Maybe you know, I can do this on my own. And this is why we're called to give our first. This is why he calls us to give. Because we are constantly saying, God, this doesn't control me. This doesn't control me. It give, I give it to you. This helps with our heart. And Christ is more worried about our heart. He's more worried about the heart action of what we're doing. Because the reality is, he doesn't need it. He has a cattle on a thousand hills. He can make it. But he wants to protect our hearts. He wants us to have hearts that are giving, that are full of love, that are full of compassion. Another way we can know what we value or what is at the center of our hearts. I have a couple of scriptures Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Christ is given this benediction. Go and share Christ. Go and share the good works. You've received it now, this power through the Holy Spirit to be a witness for me. And we see it play out in Acts. In Acts 4.20, we see this story. Peter and John replied, and they're in jail, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. Soon after, they're going to be thrown into jail. We talk about the things we love. Right, we really talk about the things that we love. Hey, listen, I am a huge Steelers fan. I thought about putting this on today, but I was like, man, it gets hot up here. <laughs> this is a Steelers hoodie. This is what I wear on Sundays when the Steelers are playing. You can smell it. It kind of stinks because it's nervous sweats that are happening when the Steelers are playing. <laughs> but you know what? I can talk about the Steelers. I can talk about how many championships they won. I can talk about how the last two seasons have played out. Some of those games that were so close. I'm like, if we would have won, we would have been in the playoffs. I can talk about them. I can talk about this. Golf. I love golf. Okay. Deeply like golf. 
I love, I like being on the green. I love being on the links. I love being in nature. I love having time with people and just hanging out, talking about golf, playing golf. This club, I will not discuss how much it costs because I do not want to be judged, but I will say there was part of a Christmas gift that was given to me. We talk about the things that we love, right? It's on our lips. It's easy. It's, it, we just, it just comes out. Now, I'm not saying let's be religious about this and like keep a tab and like, oh, what did I talk most about today? Like if your wife go, you go home today and your wife asks you, hey, where should we go eat? You don't need to say Jesus. Like <laughs> she'd be like, Jesus? Did you mean Jesus? Do you want Mexican? And so like we realize what we value by what we talk about, the things that we share, what's on our hearts. As long as Jesus isn't our greatest love, we'll be quiet about it. We serve most what we love slash value the most. But not only that, we go out of our way to make times for the things that we love, right? We definitely go away out of our way to make time for those things. We think about Jake, Jacob. He went out of his way, right? He probably could have like, said, you know what? Like, I, you can still pay me, but what I really want is Rachel. He said, no, 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 no. Don't even pay me. I want, I want Rachel. I heard this quote as I was preparing. Can't remember completely where it came from. But it, the gist of it was this. Church is the thing in our schedule that we miss if it doesn't fit into our week instead of the thing we plan around. We value the body as Jesus values the body. You know, it feels tough to give a list being like, you know, this is what valuing Christ looks like. These are the things that we cause us to do. Because our values define our character. It values who we are and what we do. It impacts every aspect of our life, including personal decisions, work decisions, our intentions with our family, our friends, our coworkers, our decision-making process, the direction we take in life. That's what drives us. And this is so important to know what it is that Christ does in his heart. So here are some of the things that are the center of Christ. Family. We see family as a big thing. We see that Jesus, when he was about to die on the cross, he entrusts his mom to John. This wasn't just like a last minute kind of like idea. I felt like he needed to do. It shows that he cared previously about his mother and that he loved his family. He loves his family. That was something on his heart. Justice. Justice was important to the heart of God. And we see a focus on justice throughout the OT. We see it through the teachings of Jesus. And we see it even in the early church. It's especially important for those who are less fortunate, right? And can't stick up for them. It's something that we're called to do. And we see Jesus do this with the prostitutes. Mercy. Jesus didn't treat others as they deserve to be treated. Instead, he gave love and forgiveness freely. Freely to them. Even to the point of laying down his own life. The core Christian message is that we don't have to be judged according to our sinful actions. Instead, we are freely loved and forgiven by God, his mercy. Faithfulness. God sticks with us, and we see this all the time. We see this in the Old Testament, in God's covenant with the nation of Israel, right? They struggled. God still stuck with them. He was right there with them. And even now, he says he's never going to leave us, never going to forsake us. So faithful. How are we? Do we show mercy? Do we show justice? Do we deeply care for our family? Are we faithful to the things that we're called to be faithful to? Prayer. Jesus was constantly in prayer. He constantly had this, these moments where he went away from the disciples to go pray. 
even before he was about to be trialed, been captured, he was praying. Worship, everything Jesus did, he says, is to my Father. Evangelism, we see Jesus constantly speaking of who, of, of the, of, we see him constantly speaking of who he was to people. Always pointing, he's like, this is who I am. Leading them to him, to his Father. We see him being hospitable, and we're like, how is he hospitable? Dude didn't have a house. This extends beyond a house. Jesus is very inviting. Even without a home, he was hospitable. That is skill. He was inviting even though there was disorder in our hearts. And to be really truthful, Jesus was hospitable in bringing us into his Father's heavenly house. That's good. The most hospitable thing. Community. We see him walking with his disciples. We see him, we see him teaching his disciples. We see him in this constant community. And this is where I want to end with. There is something that happens deep within us with Christ-centered. The great thing is that when we value Christ, he begins to unearth the talents he has given to us. He begins to show the value he's actually put in us. When we value him, when we, show the, when we say you're the center, then he begins to do something within our hearts and within our, ta- within our lives, within us. In Romans, if we want to ch- turn there, Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, it says, By the grace given... Me, I say to everyone on you, to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophecy, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him sovereign diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. I'm not going to go deep into these gifts and what they mean. But I want to point out a few things about this. Every time Paul mentions spiritual gifts, and he mentions them six different times throughout Scripture, each list it looks different. I think there's, there's more than 22. He lumps them into two basic categories, ones who speak for God and ones who serve for God. And we see that in 1 Peter 4.11. And Paul describes them as spirituals. And we see that here. That we're like, oh, that's kind of weird. That seems kind of cultish. It's, no, it's not. It's like, it simply means spiritual manifestations, like final manifestations. That seems weird too. It's when the Spirit is within us, something arises within us, His Holy Spirit. It's a pure, pure, pure thing. It's the gifts He's given us, and He causes them to work for this church. And so these gifts that Paul talks about, they're given to us for a purpose. And the purpose they are given to us is that God wants to do something in our world through this church. We've all been given a gift. This is the promise. This is what he said he, we all have. We all have one. It's a permanent thing. You have been given a gift. Sometimes it's temporary. Sometimes it comes for a moment or a season when God wants to do something. You might, there's a gift that happens. You're like, oh, that's never happened to me before. 
But then there are things that simply he just calls us to do. Simply he just simply spoke it out. Like evangelize. And you're like, yeah, that's not my gift. Christ didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't give me that gift. But the difference is, is he actually commanded us to do it. And the beauty is that through your spiritual gift, you can evangelize to those around you. Well, how? Let's say if you're hospitable, you work in that gift. You open up your home to a friend, creating a space where they feel welcomed, where they can open up to you. And then in that moment, then you can start to share of what Christ has done in your life. Therefore, evangelize. What about encouragement, right? If you're just an amazing encourager, and you just, you're just constantly building people up, and eventually you're building someone up who has just been totally down there, like, well, what it is, though? why are you so happy? Why are you so good with, like, building people up? And then you can tell them about the faith within inside of you. Your gift leads you to evangelize. This is why it is key for us to know our gift and to work within our gift. When we know the things that we've been given, when we know the talents that we have, then we can begin to work it for the church. We see as we value him and as we make him the center, as we, all of our decisions flow through him, something inside of us happens and we see the value he's placed inside of us. Our walk with Christ really begins to take off when we begin discovering it and using it. And nothing helps us grow in our relationship with Christ like helping somebody else grow in their, in their relationship with Christ. You want to grow, we need to come alongside somebody and disciple them. Because we're simply created for service. We're, we, are call, we weren't called to be sanitized and placed on some kind of sanctified shelf. Paul explained to the church in Corinth that everyone has been given supernatural ability, supernatural talents. It's for the church to come together and to use them in a powerful way. I want to invite Curtis up, and we're going to close. Serving unlocks God's deepest purpose in you and shows the value he has placed within you to help this world. We need everyone to work within the body. We simply need everyone. And I've said this, when we value Christ, it's going to pop up, we see the value he puts in us. He's intentionally set it up this way. He didn't set it up in a way that we're just singular. Because if he did, then we'd all possess all the gifts. Paul constantly uses this analogy as the church of the body. And what is dangerous for you is when we're separate from the body, when we're separate from it. Malachi, he once brought me a grasshopper. He was super pumped about this grasshopper. It was huge. I think it was like that big. He brought this grasshopper to me. He showed it to me. And he was like, look at this grasshopper, Dad. It's massive. We've never seen grasshoppers like this in Saskatchewan. <laughs> and then I asked a simple question. Where are its legs? Then he pulled out his other hand and opened it up. And there were his legs. <laughs> Those legs now are disconnected. They're shriveled up. Then they die. They're, like, they're disconnected. They, they don't have their function anymore. They have lost their value, the legs, except for a scrumptious dinner. When, when we are disconnected from the body of Christ, we search for a value outside of that. Like, the legs are disconnected, right? It has no value now. But not only that, but the body of the grasshopper, it can't work to the fullest of function that was created to work. And so when we are together, when we aren't coming like this and we're, we're 
encouraging each other, where we're using our spiritual gifts. When we feel like we're on the outside, we're going to be disconnected, and we're going to lose maybe some of that value he's put inside of us. But when we come together, the church's value, it just grows exponentially because of the gifts he's put inside of us. The Bible in 1 Peter says that the Satan, that Satan prowls around like a lion. Prowls around like a lion. Have you ever seen a lion attack? Have you watched the Discovery Channel lately? They look for the prey on the outskirts of the pack. They look for the isolated ones from the others. They sneak up on, one, on those who are just lingering outside. God calls us to be close to the body. And before I pass this off to Curtis, the question I want to leave you is, where does your treasure lie? Where does it lie? This is the big thing. Where does it lie? We see the story of where Jacob lied. What happened? We see then where it lied for Leah and how it changed. We see for us what it's called to do for the church, what is supposed to be the thing that we follow the most, and it's Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather, and we thank you that you share so much on how you feel about us as the church. Lord, that you have given us these gifts and these talents, and they're used to bring people to come to know you. They're used to edify the body. Or what good is my gift if I can't do anything with it? If I'm a teacher, what am I going to do? Stand in front of the mirror and teach to myself? If I'm an encourager, what am I going to do? Just encourage myself? If I'm hospitable, how can I open up my home? Someone else. It's just me. Father, we thank you. for the things you have placed inside of us. Lord, we value you not because what you can do for us. We value you because you are simply the only way. Lord, I want you to be on my lips. The thing I talk about the most. The thing I talk about and smile. Amen.